now listening to the Charity Church Podcast. Well, good morning, Charity. Uh, so excited to be able to be back with you today as we conclude our two-week uh, mini series called Made to Worship. And if you were here last week, we talked about the fact that every single one of us is a worshiper. Every single one of us worships something or someone. The question is who? And if you call yourself a Christ follower, that you belong to Jesus, you have been saved by him, he should be the object of our worship and nothing else. And so I know that in this context, when I say worship in church, we immediately think of the the time of the service we just had where we sing to Jesus, and that is a time of worship. That's a time that we express our worship through song to Jesus for who he is and all he's done, but that is just a part of worship. And so the goal of this two weeks is to, to look at the biblical definition of worship and realize it is so much more than just singing. And so a simple definition of worship we gave last week is this. Worship is our response to God for who he is and all that he has done for us. It's a response. Worship is our response to God for who he is and all that he's done for us. And three areas of worship that we looked at were the fact, like I said in that definition, worship is a response but worship is also a lifestyle, and worship is transformative. And so today I told y'all I wanted to really kind of flesh out what does it mean to live a life of worship, a lifestyle of worship. Our our main text from last week was found in the book of Romans, um, which is just an amazing book uh, that, that Paul wrote to the church of Rome. And When he was saying that worship is a response, what he was saying in Romans 12, 1, he said, therefore, in light of all of God's mercies, his grace, it's the only rational or logical thing to do is to worship him for all that he's done. And so Paul, for the first 11 chapters in Romans, laid out the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did for us. That's what we celebrate next week on Easter that our God is alive, that he did for us what we could never do for ourselves, that he lived a perfect life and laid down his life on a cross for you and for me, becoming the perfect and the permanent sacrifice for you and for me. That's the good news that he laid out in the first 11 verses. And then he went on and he said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And here's the good news, friends. Every single Christian I've ever met wants to know what is the will of God for my life. I've got the answer for you this morning. The will of God for your life and for my life is to bring glory and honor and praise to him. That is the will of God for your life. Regardless of what you do for a living, God's will for your life is to bring glory and honor and praise to him, which is worship. That is what worship is. That's the kind of worship that Jesus is after. He's looking 
for a lifestyle of worship. He's not looking for just an emotional response. Uh, We call that like a church camp experience where, I mean, we can't get you to show up on the weekend, but you go to church camp and you're surrounded by everybody that thinks like you and they're praising Jesus. And next thing you know, I'm going on the mission field. I'm going to be a pastor when I grow up. And then you go back to school on Monday, you go back to work on Monday, and all of a sudden you're not surrounded by a bunch of people who are thinking like you and praising like you, and you're like, ah, maybe not a pastor, maybe not a missionary. It was just an emotional response. Jesus is not looking for an emotional response. He's looking for a lifestyle. And when I say the word lifestyle, I know there's lots of different areas you could think about, but for me, I immediately started thinking about like a healthy lifestyle. And for me personally, for many, many years, I try my best to live a healthy lifestyle. I've never once done a diet, ever, because diets don't last, diets don't work, but a lifestyle, now that's different. And that means that I'm gonna choose a salad over a Snickers. That means that I'm gonna show up to the gym more than I don't show up to the gym. It is a lifestyle. And so I was just curious, like what kind of diets are out there? What kind of fad diet is out there? And so I just did some Google searches. And did you know that a 2020 survey of over 2,000 adults discovered that the average adult does over 126 fad diets in their life? I said, that's insane. It's just on to the next great thing on to the next best. And then when you reintroduce whatever it is that you've completely taken out of your diet, all of a sudden you look in the mirror and you look at the scale and you're like, wait a minute, that didn't work. Now I'm 10 pounds heavier than I was before. Jesus is not looking for an emotional response. But what's interesting is that is exactly what we see happening as he's entering into Jerusalem. Today is Palm Sunday. This is the beginning of Holy Week when Jesus goes in to Jerusalem, and we see the crowd all together in an emotional response to Jesus and who he is and who they think that he is. And the writer Matthew, he puts it this way in Matthew 21, verse 8 and 9. It says, now most of the crowd, they spread their cloaks on the road. So as Jesus was coming in, they literally laid their cloaks on the road or palm branches on the road in front of him. They were literally giving him the red carpet treatment. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This crowd was so excited. Hosanna means the Lord saves. And they were so excited because they thought Jesus was coming to save them right then, that he was coming to save them from the Roman oppression that they were under. That is not why Jesus came. Jesus came to do far greater things than to simply free them from the oppression that they were under from Rome. He came to save us from eternity separated from God the Father. And so he is Hosanna. He is the Lord who saves But as soon as that crowd realized that you mean you're not here to save us right now, they immediately turned their back. Once they realized they reintroduced those carbs into their diet 
and they looked down and that fad diet didn't work. They said, bump this, and they moved on. Emotional responses, fads do not end well. They don't last. And this exact same crowd that was shouting, Hosanna, laying the red carpet treatment, just a few days later in Matthew 27, we see that they did a complete 180. It said, the governor again said to them, which of the two of you do you want me to release? Which was a custom. The crowd could choose. And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And it says they all, every single person who was shouting Hosanna, laying the red carpet tree, they all said, let him be crucified. Pilate said, why? What evil has this man done? You want me to crucify Jesus? But again, they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Unbelievable how quick they did a 180 and turned their back. But again, emotional responses, fads never end well. And this is why Jesus is not looking for emotional responses from you and me. Jesus expects and demands nothing else than total surrender of all of our lives to him and his lordship. And I love the way the author of Hebrew puts it for us. He records it in Hebrews 13. He says, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. He's saying that we should offer up praises to God for who he is and all he's done. We should do that, but it cannot stop right there. Because the very next verse he goes on, he says, and do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You understand, see, we are to offer up praises. That's vertical praise to God. But the author of Hebrews says, don't stop with vertical praise. It's got to manifest itself out in horizontal praise and how we interact with one another how we show the love of Jesus to this lost world. So if all we have is vertical praise without horizontal praise, Jesus is not impressed by that. In fact, he has a word for you and me if all we do is give lip service. Quoting the prophet Isaiah in Matthew 15, Jesus says this about the Pharisees. He says, this people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus is not impressed by lip service. And so the question then is, how do we live a lifestyle of praise? How do we not only praise him vertically, but how does it manifest itself out horizontally? And for that, we're gonna go right back to the text that we were in last week in Romans chapter 12, if you brought your Bibles. Now, here's what's fascinating about Romans 12 and what we're about to read. Paul, who wrote this, Paul is the king of run-on sentences and long paragraphs to drive his point home about something. I mean, sometimes I gotta like catch my breath halfway through one of his sentences. And Paul is about to change the script in the way he writes in Romans chapter 12. So instead of run-on sentences, he is about to hit us with rapid-fire bullet points. Like a PowerPoint presentation, he is about to hit us 
in these few verses with 30 different characteristics or markings of a Christ follower. And so I want to read it, and then I want to come back and explain what it is that he's saying about. But here's, here's the cool thing about Romans chapter 12. A lot of scholars would define or describe Romans chapter 12 as like, this is the graduation ceremony. So the first 11 chapters, he's taken us to school. Now we've graduated, and just like in any graduation ceremony, this is the commencement speech. This is when he's going to give us our marching orders on what a lifestyle of worship looks like. So picking up in verse 9, Paul writes this. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, quoting Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. First, by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, doesn't that list of 30 markings sound easy? Not so much. But did you catch what Paul is doing here? What he's doing is he just laid out for us Jesus' life. These are the markings that characterize Jesus and how he lived his life. And if we're Christ followers, our life is supposed to be marked by Christ. Our life is supposed to look like Jesus' life. And so let's just go through here and see what Paul is talking about and how we live a lifestyle of worship. He starts by saying, let love be genuine. Love is the foundation for every single thing that he's about to lay out for you and me in these verses. Some of your translations might say, and I really like this, it says, don't let your love be hypocritical. Don't let your love be hypocritical. And like I said last week, the Greek language is so beautiful, the words would paint a picture way more than our English language a lot of times. And that word hypocrite in antiquity is the word that they use for actors. Now, you and I are used to turning on a movie or something, and there's 20 different actors or actresses to play 20 different roles. But that's not the way it worked back then. There was one person who played all the different roles, and they were called a hypocrite. That was the word for actor. And so what would happen is they'd pick up a mask and they would play this role. And then they'd put that mask down, pick up this mask, and they'd play the other role. And he says, don't let your love be like that. Let your love be genuine, not hypocritical. Hypocritical love is the kind of love where you say something to somebody really nice only so you can get close enough to stab them in the back. And Paul's saying, 
Don't love people like that. And when I think about that kind of love, the person that pops in my mind is Judas, right? One of Jesus's followers, the night Jesus is praying in the garden, you see Judas walking towards Jesus when none of the other disciples are. You're like, oh, Judas loves Jesus. He's the one approaching Jesus. And then he walks up to Jesus and he greets him with a kiss. And you're like, oh man, he must really love Jesus. He greeted him with a kiss, affection, No, it was a kiss of betrayal. His love was hypocritical. And he says, don't let your love be hypocritical. Let love be genuine. Then he goes on, he says, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Your translation might say, hate what is evil. And so what Paul is saying is you and I should hate the things that God hates and hold on to the things that God loves. And you might be thinking, hate's a strong word. God hates things? Yes, he does. And we actually have a list of the things that God hates. It's found in Proverbs chapter six. And I love the way it's worded. It says, God hates six things, no seven things. And I'm like, how did that work? Like God had a list of six things. I don't like these things at all. And then somebody like you and me did something and and God's like, yeah, you need to add that one to the list as well. And so in Proverbs, he gives us a list. Number one thing is haughty eyes. Haughty eyes just simply means thinking way too highly of yourself and looking down on other people. God doesn't want us looking down on other people and thinking too highly of himself. If you come in contact with another human being, that's somebody that Jesus went to the cross for, just like you and me. Number two, he doesn't like a lying tongue simply says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And if you tell somebody you're going to do something, do it to the best of your ability. Do not be a liar. The third thing, hands that shed innocent blood. And I don't want to get on a soapbox, but I believe that right there is a sermon in and of itself. And when I think of innocent blood, there's no more innocent blood than a baby inside the mother's womb. And he says he hates the shedding of innocent blood. Blood. Number four, a heart that devises wicked plans. There are some people who just do their best to scheme and come up with wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. Some people just run and dive headfirst off the high dive right into sin. They look for ways to run into sin. Number six, false witness who breathes out lies. And number seven, please listen right to this one, church. God detests one who sows discord among brothers. Do not be somebody who causes disunity with your brothers and sisters in the faith. So those are the things that God hates, in case you've ever wondered. Proverbs 6 is where they're located. But then he goes on and he says, so be opposed to the things that God's opposed to, but hold fast to the things that are of God. And again, I love the original language. This idea of hold fast is the word glue. Be glued to the things that God loves. And I love how one commentary that I was reading by R.C. Sprouls puts it. He says that we are to hang on tightly to that which is good, allowing it to be cemented to our souls so that we do not drop or lose it with the next wind of cultural fantasy that comes our way. And I think back to what Paul said in Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the ways of this world. Instead, be glued 
to the things of God. Let it be cemented on your soul so that the next thing that comes along some cultural fantasy, you're not tossed to and fro like a wave, Jesus would say, but you are glued to the truth and the things of God. Verse 10, he goes on and says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This idea of brotherly affection. This is brotherly love, phileo love. Um, Philadelphia is this is the city of brotherly love, or so they say. As a Cowboys fan, I, I just look at them and say, y'all do a terrible job of showing brotherly love. Can I get a witness? There's more Cowboys fans in this service than the, than the first. I'll tell you that. They start throwing things at me in the first service. Like, that is not brotherly love. But what Paul is saying is that we, you and I, should love each other like we're family. You know why? Because we're a family. He says, when we were born into this world, we were born into a a natural family. And when we were reborn, we were born into a spiritual family. And just like you might have a crazy cousin Eddie in your real family that you wouldn't typically want to hang out with, you still hang out with them because they're your family. There might be some people, I might be the person you're like, this guy's weird, but you still got to hang out with me because I'm your family. And he's saying, we've got to love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. I love this. When, when I think of showing honor to somebody, really what that means is that you, you humble yourself. Humble yourself and do everything you can to lift up and honor the other person. And you and I ought to be people of showing honor to one another. He says, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And what Paul is saying, that if you are a Christ follower, you and I should never have to be begged to serve the Lord. We should never have to beg and plead to get people to serve. We should have a zeal, a fervent nature about us for the things of Jesus. But man, our culture is so jacked up. We have zeal and we have passion and we have fervor about the things of our own world. And we're all about building up our own kingdom. And Paul is saying, no, the number one focus, the number one priority of your life is to serve the Lord, to build his kingdom. And we need to have passion and zeal about that. He says, this next verse is beautiful. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant. In prayer. Now, this is a beautiful verse, and it's also a freaky verse at the same time because he says, be patient in tribulation. He doesn't say if tribulation. We all know if you've been alive more than five minutes that trials and tribulation are going to be part of your life. There's no way to avoid it. But Paul is saying that you and I who claim to be Jesus followers should handle the trials and tribulations of our life different than the rest of the world. And if you're wondering how you do that, he gives the answer. He bookends trials and tribulations with the answer, hope and prayer. Hope and prayer is how we handle it different than the rest of the world handles it. We have a hope that the rest of the world does not have. Yesterday, we were doing a celebration of life service for someone who has gone to be with the the Lord. And, And Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica. He says, I write this to you so that you're not uninformed, brothers, so that you do not grieve 
like the rest of the world grieves. We, because we have a hope that the rest of the world does not have. Not only for this life, but for the life to come. And, and I've seen this manifest itself so often. Just this past week, I was sitting on the front porch with a church member, Jimmy Knupp, who is under hospice care right now. So keep Jimmy and Margie and that family in your prayers. Jimmy is at the end of life. And so he is frail. He is exhausted. He can barely speak. But he was sitting out on the front porch. We're sitting there. And I'm talking. He's just listening. He's nodding, affirming. And all of a sudden, he just looks over at me. And he just smiles. I said, Jimmy, what are you smiling at? And he said, I'm ready to meet my Jesus. And I told y'all a couple years ago, a moment that radically changed my ministry. I'm sitting in the hospital room with Jim White, another amazing church member. And the doctor came in and gave him news. There's nothing we can do for you. You probably have a couple of days to live. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, oh gosh. And all of a sudden, Jim starts... Tears start coming down his face. He starts clapping. I said, Jim, what are you thinking? He gets this big grin on his face, and he says, I'm about to meet my Jesus. It radically changed my life, that moment. I will never forget that moment. We have a hope that the rest of the world does not have, not only for this life, but the life to come. And he tells us what we do in trials and tribulations is we shift the burden through prayer. Prayer is a burden shifter. There are burdens that you and I can't handle, but we take our burdens and we shift them to God through prayer. Guess who's big enough to handle your burdens? God. And an amazing thing happens when we go to him in prayer. We go to him in prayer and he begins to change the way we see something, the way we think about something, the way we understand something. And he begins to give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. And we go to him in prayer and we're like, God, I can't handle this, but God, I I believe your word when you say you work all things out for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And I'm going to trust you because God, you're over everything. And so I'm going to trust you through everything. He tells us how to handle trials and tribulations with hope and prayer. And he goes on, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I love this. Friends, if you call yourself a Christ follower, your life should be a life of generosity. Generosity just means that if you see a brother or sister in need and you have the ability to meet that need, that you meet that need, no questions asked. Generosity means you meet a need without any expectation of anything in return. Generous people give to be a blessing and do not expect anything in return from it. And then he says that we are to show hospitality. Now, when he's talking about generosity, he's talking about you and me, people who know each other, people who are in fellowship with one another. The word hospitality is really talking about strangers, So you and I should be uh, hospitable to strangers. We should be welcoming to strangers. So we're Jesus followers. You see a moving truck come into your neighborhood, we should be the first ones at their front door knocking. Hey, welcome to the neighborhood. Are you one of those crazy Bible thumpers? Yes, I am. Let me tell you about Jesus. But 
We should be the first ones at their door with some baked cookies or pie, you know, buy some at Food Line, throw them in the microwave. They think you did it. But we should be the one. But we've gotten terrible at this. We've gotten so terrible at this. Now we come home from work, we see our neighbor outside, and we're like, oh God, please let the garage door open. The garage door opens, and we get out of our car, and we wave as it closes, and we run inside before they can make it to our driveway. And so my question is, do you even know your neighbor's names? Do you know their kids' names? Engage and show hospitality to the stranger. He says this, look, these first few verses, I believe, I mean, that's kind of easy, but now we're getting ready to get into the supernatural where you're like deep gulp. I don't know about this because he goes on, he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. And Paul does the classic Paul thing right here where he repeats himself. And I believe he repeats himself because he knows our first response when he says, bless those who persecute you is our response in the flesh. You can be like, say what? He says, bless and do not curse them. This is a picture of Jesus. Can I tell you that sometimes in a situation when someone is coming at you, the best thing that you can and I can do is nothing at all? The best thing we can do is avoid stooping to what they're doing. Don't play their game and instead simply let God be your defender. The best thing we can do is let God be our defender. And as difficult as this is, take it a step farther and pray for them. I told you earlier, hypocritical love, I think of Judas. When I think about this, Bless those who curse you. Bless them and do not curse them. That, to me, is a beautiful picture of Jesus. They beat him. They mocked him. They spit in his face. They beat him to a point where he was unrecognizable as a human, all done right in front of his mom. And while he was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He goes on, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I love this. This is an opportunity, friends, for us to practice the ministry of presence. This church is amazing at being present. When he says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, your presence is one of the greatest ministries you could ever give to somebody. And if I'm being honest, when I first got into ministry, I was young in ministry, I used to be so intimidated by doing hospital visits. The idea of being with some, uh, death freaked me out. The idea of like being with a family when a loved one was about to pass away and I, I was so intimidated, but I've been blessed to have amazing mentors, Pastor Hammond, Pastor Marty, Sean, guys that have been in ministry a lot longer. And they said, listen, why are you so intimidated? I don't know what to say. And they said, you don't need to say anything. There's nothing you can say to change their situation. All you need to do is just be there. And if somebody's weeping, you weep with them. The ministry of your presence is one of the greatest gifts you could ever give to somebody in a time of loss. And now I consider it one of the greatest honors that I get to do in pastoral ministry. But I believe that the other one is just as hard. Rejoice with those who rejoice. 
I'm like, that sounds easy. Really? He's saying that like, this means that you rejoice when your friend gets the promotion instead of you. This means that like when you are in a financial bind and your car is broken down and you don't even have the money to take it to the shop and get it out of the shop and yet your friend comes up to you at work and you're like, God bless me with a new car, rejoice with me. And you're like, get out of my face. He's saying rejoice with your brothers and sisters when they rejoice. He goes on and says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the, love, the lowly. And our world is so divided right now. The world has enough disunity. We don't need disunity in the church. We need unity. We need to all be rowing in the same direction. We need to be a unified body. Leave the disunity to the rest of the world. And he says again, do not be haughty. That means thinking too highly of yourself. Please hear me. The church should be the last place on earth where you ever find a click. There should never be a click in this place. And I know our culture is really good about like idolizing people and celebrity and fame and fortune. That's not the thing that Jesus is about. He says, don't ever think you're too good to hang out and associate with the lowly. And if you do, can I just challenge you in love this morning when I say you probably would have a hard time hanging out with Jesus who was born to nothing, who had a nothing job, who was considered a social outcast. Be willing to associate with anybody and show the love of Christ to them. He says, repay no one with evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. I love this. Give thought. So important. You and I need to think in advance about how we're going to handle certain situations. Not in the moment. If we wait till the moment and somebody's coming at us, man, we're going to respond to them just like they're responding to us. Think in advance. We tell our students all the time, man, you got to set a game plan and have some boundaries set in place. Because if you wait until you're like hot and heavy and that's when you're gonna set boundaries, that's a terrible game plan. All the parents should have said, same thing works for us. Think in advance how you're gonna respond. And he says, in the sight of all. It's so important, friends, because the world is watching how you and I respond. The world is watching. And then he says, verse 18, I love this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Can we all just say to Paul, thank you for saying if possible? Because we do know that it's not possible to be at peace with all. Because to be at peace means that both sides have got or are willing to be at peace. He says that while we can't control how the other people respond, we are responsible for how we respond. And he says, if it's possible... If the other side wants reconciliation and forgiveness, you give it and be at peace with them. And I love a quote that I saw this week. It says, if you have an unmendable relationship with your neighbor, you just make sure that the problem is not on your side of the fence, if possible. And then he lands the plane, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For so doing, you will reap burning coals on his head. This is so cool what this actually means. First of all, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. You're like, what? Sounds like a horrible battle plan. But I want you to think about how disarming that is. Somebody's coming at you, they're blasting you, and you're like, man, your timing is perfect. I just made a ham sandwich. Take this ham sandwich. I got this cold glass of iced tea. You can have it. What we want to do is I got this tall glass of shut your face. <laughs> right? How disarming is it if they come at us and you're like, here, take my sandwich and my drink. And they're like, what? Let me tell you, Saul is the best I've ever seen at this. I'll get an email. I'll get a phone call. It gets me all riled up. I'll storm into Saul's office and be like, Saul, I need to talk to you. You're not going to believe what just happened to me. And I'm ready to just spew it. And he's like, Tommy, you are so good at loving people. I'm like, what? What's that? I'm like, no, no, no. Let me, let me tell you what they did to me and what I want to do. And he'll be like, man, the way you love on people in the midst of tragedy. I'm like, what are you doing right now? But what does it do? It shines a spotlight on our own immaturity. It shows, uh, shines a spotlight on how foolish we're acting, which is exactly what that means when it says, you will reap burning coals on their head. So this is an ancient Egyptian practice. If somebody came, if somebody came to the realization they had done wrong and they felt shame, they would put burning coals on their head, not in an attempt to hurt themselves. They would be protected, but they would walk in public. And that would be their way of showing remorse. It would be their way of saying, I know what I've done and I'm guilty and I feel shame. And he says, when you respond to them that way, that's what happens. And then he wraps it up by saying, do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, which friends, that's exactly what Jesus did on this earth. And so the bottom line today is this, a life that reflects Jesus is a life that glorifies the Father. That is God's will for your life, to bring glory and honor and praise to Him, which is worship. We glorify and worship the Father by reflecting the Son, and that is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit living in us and through us. Do you see all three persons of the Trinity? That is a lifestyle of worship. Jesus, we thank you. God, that as we learned last week and saw today, we have direct access to your glory now. God, that it's on us and in us and you want it to shine through us the way that we interact with this world. God, I pray that you'll give us the boldness, the gentleness to do that, to be a light to this dark world not to add to disunity, God, but to be so different that this world sees us and they say something is different about that guy. Something is different about that girl. I don't know what it is, but I want to know, and God, that we can point them directly to you, the only one who has the power to save. And so, God, I pray that we live lifestyles of worship. It is more than just singing. If we didn't even have songs to sing, God, we would worship you all the time just with the way we live. We love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.